everyone, it's Krista Bontrager, and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast, where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go. Well, congratulations, you've made it to week 16 of our 52-week journey through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. It's a beautiful spring day. I hope you're enjoying the weather wherever you are. And, you know, just on a more honest note, it's been a tough week for me, and that always makes it tough to keep up with the Bible reading But I hope that you're persevering. I know it was a lot harder for me this week. And if you get behind, that's okay. Just just jump in with wherever we're at and uh, continue the journey with us. That's what it's all about. It's just pressing forward. Remember, we're pouring God's word over us so we can grow each and every day in our understanding of what he wants us to know. We're picking up the story this week in 1 Kings chapter 8. Where we left off last week is in the middle of a large chunk in 1 Kings chapters 5 to 10. And so we're picking it up right in the middle of that chunk. And this is all about the glories of Solomon's reign. We read last week about the construction of the temple and the palace of Solomon, the the temple furnishings. And now we're picking up the story in chapter 8 with the dedication of the temple. And a couple quick notes about this section. It's interesting when the priests bring in the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. This is now going to be God's residence on earth. If he had an address, this is where his address would be on earth. It was in the Holy of Holies of the temple. Then read in verse 10, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Now I think what's interesting about this little reference here is that this presence of God on earth happens a few different times in scriptures. If we think back to Genesis, God himself was with Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. And then There was some times out in the wilderness where God would make an appearance to his people. His presence was with them. Exodus chapter 16 verse 10 comes to mind. But then we see in the coming of Jesus in the New Testament, we say God incarnate, God with us comes to dwell. He comes to pitch his tent among his people is another form of God's presence here on earth. And then when we get to the new creation in Revelation, we'll see that we will dwell in his presence fully for all eternity with him. And so this little type or shadow of God's presence coming to dwell in the temple points forward to a better time in the new covenant with Jesus and even further in our future in the new creation in heaven when we will dwell with God face to face for all eternity. And then we finish out this big section through chapter 10 of the glories of Solomon's reign. And then we get to a turning point in 1 Kings that also in a turning point in the history of Israel in chapter 11. 
And I want to take a moment to point out a couple of things here, because if you miss them, you might miss the plot turn of the story that the author is trying to tell us in First and Second Kings. Chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from the nations which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had several hundred wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Very sad verse because on this hinge will turn the entire story. The author is laying a very important foundation for what will follow. As Solomon grew old, it says in verse 4, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as his father had done. Wow. Here Solomon has ascended the heights of spirituality. He was the one who built the temple dedicated the temple he received the wisdom of God and yet in his old age he didn't finish strong he didn't finish the race well he allowed himself to be pulled away from the one true God and having his heart be distracted and turning toward other gods because of his wives this begins the introduction of a very sad chapter in Israel's history and it lays the foundation for the sins of idolatry that will plague God's people throughout the rest of first and second kings until he takes them into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians toward the end of chapter 11 there's a rebellion of Jeroboam against Solomon. Jeroboam was one of Solomon's military leaders. And then Solomon dies at the end of chapter 11. That account about Jeroboam, however, lays the foundation for a plot point that will unfold itself in chapter 12. And that is after Solomon's death, there is sort of an internal battle about succession. Who will succeed the throne of Solomon? Will it be Jeroboam, this military leader, or will it be Rehoboam, one of Solomon's sons? What ends up happening is that Solomon's kingdom is divided in two. Ten tribes in the north follow Jeroboam, and Judah and Benjamin in the south follow Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And what ends up happening is that this is a pivotal chapter in Israel's history. If you miss this, you're going to be a little lost in where we go in the rest of First and Second Kings. But Jeroboam, he sets up these alternative worship centers in Bethel and Dan. And Bethel was in the southern part of the northern kingdom, and Dan was in the northern part of the northern kingdom. So kind of at the two boundaries. And he sets up these alternative worship centers with golden calves. And basically he says, you know, it's going to be too inconvenient for you to go to Jerusalem, to Solomon's temple, to worship the Lord. So what we're going to do is we're going to send up some 
alternative worship centers here so that you don't have to be bothered with going down to Jerusalem for those feast days and to make all those sacrifices. You'll just come here. It'll be more convenient for you. It'll be easier. Some of the reading that I've done on this in the past, I don't think that what's happening here is he's setting up a different God. I think that what he's doing is he's setting up a different way to worship Israel's God, that these are intended to be worship centers to worship Yahweh, the one true God, but within the cultural expression of the Canaanites. Now, that's not to say that it was the right thing to do. It was not the right thing to do. It was not the ordained way that God had put forth about how his people were to worship him. You know, it wasn't enough just to worship the correct God. You had to worship the correct God correctly. And the way that you correctly worshipped the correct God was you went to Jerusalem. You went to the temple. You had a sacrifice with a Levitical priest. The sacrifice was performed a certain way. But now in chapter 12 and, and, and following, we see... Jeroboam's efforts to set up kind of a counterfeit version of Judaism that he sets up these golden calves as a way to worship Elohim or God and he does it by even appointing his own priests, creating his own feast days, his own holidays and basically this is what I call counterfeit Judaism that's happening in the north. Now that's not to say that there weren't devout Jews in the north because occasionally we're going to stumble across a few of these in first and second kings but that is to say that as a whole, the government had set up a system of worship that was based on a counterfeit version of what God had commanded his people to do. So now we enter into a new section of chapters 12 to 16. This is sort of the early period of the divided kingdom. Some of the early kings. Now you're going to get a little bit mixed up if you don't pay attention to two key terms and that is when it says it's the king of Israel that is referring to the king of the ten tribes in the north if it says it's the king of Judah then that's the king of the two tribes in the south but in God's mind it's only in the south that still that remnant from David's family that was the remnant that was taken over by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And that's where Jerusalem is. So that's where the temple is. So that's where the presence of God is. That's where the, the right priests are and who are ministering and can perform the right sacrifices. So when you read about the kings of Judah, think about that in the context of those were the ones who from the Lord's perspective were in the line of David and those are the ones that are also often in the line of the Messiah or Jesus that we will read about in Matthew chapter 1. Now we're going to see that those kings of Judah are not always righteous. Now the kings in the north there was really only one king who was almost righteous, and that was Jehu. And we'll read about him later in Second Kings. But in the kings in the south, you have some righteous kings, some sometimes righteous kings, and several extremely wicked kings. So that will be something to look for as we go through these accounts of the first kings. Who are the kings that did right in the eyes of the Lord, just like their father David? Those would be the kings in the south. Who are the ones that committed the sin of Jeroboam? Those would be the kings in the north or Israel. Now, when we get to chapter 17, 
we're going to be reminded that there are still prophets in Israel. The ministry of the prophets is still happening. And we're also going to encounter false prophets. In this case, the prophets of Baal. Sometimes we don't even know who the prophets speak for. They All of a sudden, a prophet will pop up and he'll be some spokesperson. And you have to really look close in the text to get some clues as to which God this prophet is speaking for. But in chapter 17, we're introduced to Elijah. These stories about Elijah are just timeless. And it's like Elijah against the world. You know, Ahab and Jezebel are after him. The prophets of Baal are against him. And Elijah sometimes feels like he is the lone voice in the wilderness going up against all of this evil. And this is a good reminder to the reader that even though we've had several wicked kings already, I mean, Elijah comes on the scene right after we've been introduced to Omri, Omri, who did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and Ahab, the king of Israel, and his wicked wife, Jezebel, who set up an altar for Baal and a temple of Baal in Samaria. And then just when the reader starts thinking, wow, the, the lights are going dim. Yahweh's forgotten about his people. These people are all turning away from him. Then Elijah comes on the scene. There he is. He's a piece of good news, and he's ready to fight. He's ready to go up against all of these false prophets against Ahab and Jezebel. Now in chapter 19, just a really quick thing there, you'll see the call of Elisha, who will succeed Elijah as the next prophet. He's just kind of quickly introduced there, and then we're scurried along to some discussion about attacks within Samaria against the northern kingdom. But then when we get to Second Kings chapter 2, the story picks back up with Elisha and Elijah. And Elijah is taken up into heaven in the fiery chariot in chapter 2. And then Elisha is left behind to continue to be that spokesperson for God. You know, I like the book of First and Second Kings because it offers kind of the real world. The Israelites have finally settled into the land. They're building their own civilization. They have the temple now. And yet we see in the book of Kings, the problems with corruption. Remember our big picture story of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman will be carried through the line of Judah's kings, the kings in the south. Those will be the remnant of the faithful Israel, even though they, they have their moments of really not being faithful, as we will see uh, later on in Second Kings. But when we look at that big picture story, the need is still there for redemption. The people are in the land and they have their temple and yet they're still sinners. Just the natural inclination of their heart seems to drift toward idolatry constantly, consistently, repeatedly. And this takes us back to that big picture theme that Adam's descendants need a savior. They need somebody who is big enough, strong enough, powerful enough to help them overcome the problem that started so long ago in the Garden of Eden. Now we know the end of the story, right? We've read the back of the book, but these people in the book of Kings are still 
in the midst of it. And sometimes what causes me to wonder is to think about the people that were living in this time that aren't even mentioned in the book of Kings. You know, we're, we're getting the, the prophets and the kings' names and the important people. But what about the everyday person, the everyday Jewish family that was living in the north or living in the south, trying to eke out a living in spite of these different periods of corruption and corrupt governments and corrupt worship, but maybe they were trying to be faithful to God. What was life like for them? How did they live in the midst of all of this crazy stuff that was happening around them? I don't know about you, but I can kind of relate to that. I feel like we're living in an age that it just feels like I'm being going to be crushed at any moment by an out of control government. And yet I know that God is sovereign and he's still in control. He's preserving a faithful remnant. And I see that working in the book of Kings. And I could see that still happening today that in spite of corruption in the church, in spite of counterfeit versions of Christianity, in spite of corrupt political leaders, There is the everyday Christian family, like my family, like your family. We're struggling. We're trying to eke out a living. We're trying to serve the Lord as faithfully and as carefully as we can. But it's hard. This is a hard situation. And life was hard for those people back in Kings. And it's hard for us today. But just as the Jews, some Jews, stayed faithful to God in spite of of what their governments did. And they even had the consequences of their corrupt governments. As we'll see in next week's reading, you know, not all the faithful Jews were spared. And yet we see a young man like Daniel that we're going to encounter later. He must have come from a faithful Jewish family who taught him carefully, who instructed him as a young man. And that's what you and I, so many of us at Grace Church are trying to do. So be encouraged, be encouraged that God is about the business of preserving a faithful remnant of his people. Check yourself for idols. Check yourself for the things that could distract you this week from serving the Lord. Well, I look forward to continuing our travels next week as we will continue to make our way through the book of Second Kings. Next week, we're going to pick it up in Second Kings chapter 4, and we'll almost get to the end of the book next week. And there's a lot of great stuff there. Again, this is one of my favorite parts of scripture, so I look forward to talking to you about it then. That's all for now. God bless. 